Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, thanks again for having Jenny and me here at church with you. It really is an encouragement to us to uh, see the work that you're doing here and your love for the gospel. Uh, Let's pray and ask God to help us understand this psalm and think about how it relates to the gospel. Please pray. Our Father God, we're very thankful to you that you haven't left us on our own in this world to figure out for ourselves what life is all about. Thank you that you have spoken to us clearly about what life is all about in your world. Father, please help us to understand from this psalm more about how to live in the world where Jesus is Lord so that we might honour him as he deserves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you've heard about Instagram influencers. You may not be the most active person on Instagram, but I'm sure you've heard about this modern phenomenon of influencers. Uh, up on the screen, where's the screen gone? Over here. Um, you know, I had a bit of a look at uh, the top UK influencers to follow, and like everywhere else in the world, influencers are big in the UK. Let me take you through some of the heavy hitters in the UK influencer world. People like Sinead Dolan. More than 30,000 people look to Sinead to learn from her fashion and beauty tips. Or perhaps Steph the archaeologist is more your style. She may not be quite so helpful with beauty and makeup, but if you want to follow her, you are one of 220,000 people who follow this Durham University PhD student for her archaeological, uh, archaeological and food adventures. But maybe you'd prefer to be influenced by the king of influences in the UK. Of course it is David Beckham. David is followed by a lazy 75 million people. I'm pretty sure that's more than the entire population of the UK. Uh, Following David Beckham, he's a little bit influential. Or perhaps you're more of a Harry Styles follower, along with 47 million others who like to be influenced by Harry. My personal favourite, I don't know much about your English influences, but my personal favourite is this guy, Welsh celebrity chef that I've never heard of, Uh, Matthew Pritchard, 93,000 people follow this guy. Uh, And um, I I particularly like how the article spoke about this guy. Um, I don't know whether you can read the second sentence of the the article. How much do you think he enjoyed being called a mid-tier Instagram influencer? Ouch, you know, ouch. Mid-tier, that's not what you want when you're an influencer, I don't think. Now, the great thing about influencers is that it's easy to understand what they're all about, right? You don't, you're not left wondering. They do exactly what it says on the can, right? Influencers influence people. 
basically to spend money on stuff. Stuff like clothes and makeup, food, health, cookware, holidays, pretty much anything you can market. They're influencing you to buy. Okay, so you may not be overly influenced by Instagram influencers, but you are still influenced, aren't you? Your life is still influenced in many ways. There are influences in your life. They may not be the super cool influences of Instagram, but there are still influences in your life. Can you identify them? Can you, can you work out the, the people who are shaping your life? Can you, enter, can you identify the people or the things that exert influence on the way that you live? Can you recognise them? Now, I think, like most people, you are probably looking for a secure and successful life. What will it look like? What will that secure and successful life look like? Where will you look to see examples of that secure and successful life? Who or what are the influences who will help you shape that secure and successful life? The book of Psalms begins with a psalm that is all about influence. But before we dig into Psalm 1, let's familiarise ourselves with the whole book. We're at point one, introducing the Psalms. And what you need to know about the Psalms is that they started out, they all started out in different places. They started life being written by a number of different authors at a number of different times throughout history. Some of these authors are well-known biblical influences like Moses and King David and King Solomon, but other psalms were written by authors with many less followers, like a guy named Ethan, a guy named Herman, and the families of Asaph and Korah. Some not very influential. So we have 150 of these poetic songs written by different members of the Israelite community at different times in Israel's history, and at some point they were all gathered together into what you might call Israel's songbook. And there wasn't just even one songbook. What we call the Book of Psalms is actually a collection of five songbooks. So if you look at Psalm 1 in your Bible, if you just go and have a look at your Bible, Psalm 1, you will see probably somewhere just above the heading that says Psalm 1, you'll see that this is Book 1 that we are starting in. And we can see that there's been, um, well, these five books have been collected, the five books of Psalms have been collected and they've been arranged into an order that we find them in today in our Bibles. And it's pretty clear that there's some kind of fairly deliberate arranging that's gone on. It's not just a random ordering of these psalms. We know that because each one of the books finishes with a psalm of praise to God. And the last book, book five, finishes with five psalms of praise to God. There's a lot of order, there's a lot of deliberate arranging in these books of psalms. So because of this clear ordering of the psalms, it's worth considering the order as we look at the book of Psalms, to try to understand them well. And because Psalm 1 starts the five books of Psalms, well, you might expect some sort of introduction, mightn't you? Would you, would you expect an introduction? It would be nice, wouldn't it? An introduction. This, this is what the Psalms are. This is, this is you know, how you read them. An introduction would be helpful. 
It helped us understand what we were reading and what the Psalms are all about. Can you see an introduction as you look at your Bible? Now, some of our Bible uh, publishers have inserted their own introductions, but they were probably written in about 1984. So I'm going to encourage you not to spend too much time if, if your Bible has put in its own introduction. The way the, the, way the Psalms were collected, we, well, we weren't really given a formal introduction. However, most uh, good Bible scholars actually believe that the guy who put the Psalms together did give us an introduction. That introduction is Psalm 1 and perhaps even Psalm 2 as well. And I think that's probably right. So if we understand Psalm 1 well today, it's going to set us on a really good footing for understanding all the Psalms. And, uh, well, I need to apologise because last time I was here, we looked at Psalm 2. Today, we're looking at Psalm 1. And I'm sorry we've done this in reverse order. All I've got to offer you is that I'm from the Southern Hemisphere, okay? Um, so that's, I apologise. But, but today, as we set out on our journey to understand the Psalms... I want to ask you a question to get you thinking. What do you think the Psalms are offering you? What do you think the Psalms are holding out to you? Now, at the university where I serve, we do this thing with the students. And I did it with you last time. And it's because the students, they're there to think. They're at university, they've got good minds, we want them thinking. And I want them putting those good minds into hard thinking about the Bible. And so, during a Bible talk at our university, we have this thing where I stop the talk and I give them a question. I say, you've got 30 seconds. I want you to, uh, to have a chat with the person next to you to think hard about this question. Now, I know it might not be very culturally British to do this. So, I understand that we might need to encourage you to lean into your inner Australian right now. Uh, and I'm sure in no time at all you'll find yourself enjoying Vegemite, saying g'day and winning cricket matches. So it's going to be great. <laughs> Would you take a moment with the person next to you, 30 seconds to have a think about this question and see what they say. The question is on the screen. What do you think the Psalms are offering you? Go for it. Okay, what do you think the Psalms are offering you? Well, you might have just spoken about um, perhaps wisdom. Are the Psalms offering you wisdom? It would be hard to argue against that, wouldn't it? The Jewish people have always considered the Psalms to be part of their wisdom literature, alongside the other wisdom books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Songs. But what exactly is the wisdom that the book of Psalms is offering you? It's more than just being smart, isn't it? It's more than that. Um, you probably know a lot of people who are very smart but don't seem very wise. And I think you might also know a lot of people who are perhaps not very academically gifted, but who are very wise. Perhaps it was Gary Larson who summed this up best in one of my favourite cartoons on the screen. That's the difference between wisdom and smart, right there. Because you can, you can push on that pull door for a long time and not get anywhere at Midvale School for the Gifted. It is much wiser to live in accord with the way the world actually works. So that is my definition for wisdom, really. I'm going to summarise wisdom as understanding the way the world works so that you can live in accord with the way the world works. 
Understanding how the world works so that you can live in accord with the way the world works. And that, that little um, statement about wisdom, it helps us understand the key statement in Israel's wisdom literature, which is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To understand the world, you need to understand that the Lord is the great and mighty ruler over all the world. And if you're going to live in accordance with the world, and live rightly in the world that you, you inhabit, you need to live rightly in relationship to the God who magnificently rules over it. The Psalms are holding out to us wisdom for living in God's world in a right relationship with God. So let's have a look at Psalm 1 and see what it has to say about a wise Israelite. We're at point two, a wise Israelite, and grab your Bibles, let's have a look at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man and the woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. From the very first word of this psalm, Psalm 1 holds out blessing, the promise of blessing to the person who responds wisely. But what does it mean to be blessed? Have you seen the whole hashtag blessed thing? Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it probably started out as humble thanksgiving to God. Uh, well, it pretty soon degenerated into a humble brag about wealth and privilege, right? It, it went south very quickly. You see, when you want to display your elite lifestyle, like on the screen here, it doesn't feel right to call it for what it really is, hashtag wealth and privilege. <laughs> so instead, you simply substitute in hashtag blessed and suddenly you are no longer a spoilt brat, you are a humble and grateful enlightened soul. Very easy, solves everything. But the whole hashtag blessed debacle shows that the meaning of blessed is not simple to define. And that is why some of our English versions of the Bible have gone with the word happy there at the start of verse 1. Maybe your version does. They've gone with happy instead of blessed. But I don't think happy quite catches the true meaning of the word blessed. Blessed in the Bible is a lot deeper than just happiness. Blessed in the Bible is a little bit like wisdom in the Bible. It's about the privilege of living well in God's world, which starts in a right relationship with the God who runs the world. So this blessing, this opportunity to live well in God's world, how do you avail yourself of it? How does it come to you? Well, this, these verses tell us it's all about your influences. Psalm 1 says blessing from God comes from avoiding the wrong influences and putting yourself under the right influences. There is no blessing for the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked, who, who stands in the way of sinners, who sits in the seat of scoffers. And can you see the beautiful poetic parallelism going on here? Wicked, sinners, scoffers, they're all synonyms for the same kind of bad influences. Walk, sit, sorry, walk, stand and sit, they are nearly synonyms. But there's a progression there, isn't there? The movement seems to be about getting closer to and more comfortable with the wrong influences. This is about gradually joining into sin. This is about gradually getting more comfortable with evil. 
So what is the alternative influence? It's interesting, the alternative influence is not a person. The alternative influence is the law of the Lord. Now, when I think of the law of the Lord, I think of commandments, rules, statutes, but that is not the full picture here. The Hebrew word for law, you probably know, it's the word Torah. And you might have heard that word used before as the Jewish name for the first five books of our Bible, the first five books of the the Old Testament. So the law here is more than just commands and statutes and rules. The Torah here is the first five books of the Bible at least, if not a little more as well. It's the creation accounts of Genesis, the covenant promises to Abraham, the salvation stories of the Exodus and the many other testimonies of God's faithfulness and provision for his people. The Torah, the law, is the broad revelation of God in his Old Testament scriptures. And these verses put before us a very stark choice of influences. The company of evildoers or the revelation of God. And verses 3 and 4 sum up the outcome of each possibility. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. The Israelite who delighted in God's revelation in the Torah and who meditated on it was like a prosperous tree. Now, I imagine being a tree in the Middle East isn't always fun and games, right? Being a tree in the Middle East, that that can't always be easy. There's a lot of desert in Palestine and there are not many streams. And I imagine most trees in Palestine probably dream about being planted next to a stream. You want to be the tree that gets planted by the stream, well provided for so that you can fulfil your potential. That's the kind of flourishing that this psalm is holding out to the Israelite who delighted in God's Torah. A blessed life of fulfilment and prosperity. The outcome for the wicked? The complete opposite. As opposed to the strong flourishing tree, chaff, or chaff, how do you say it here? Uh, It's the small lightweight stuff, the pieces of dried grass or dried hay. There's nothing substantial about it. There's nothing secure about it. Chaff is so small, so light, that it can be blown away by the wind. Being chaff means that life is very insecure. But this analogy raises two problems for us. I'm sure that in ancient Israel, just like in our society today, the criminals didn't always look small, lightweight and insecure. And the righteous people didn't always look like they were flourishing. I'm sure that in ancient Israel, just like in our world today, sometimes the criminals flourished and the righteous people got crushed into little chaff-sized pieces. I'm sure. And that's why verses 5 to 6 are really helpful. Let's have a look at verses 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. 
For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The really helpful thing about those two verses is that they push out our time frame of outcome evaluation. You see, the criminal might look like they flourish in this life, and it might look like crime really does pay. But when the horizon of evaluation contains God's judgment, that puts things back into correct perspective. The wicked can only prosper for so long when God is the righteous judge who will bring every action to righteous judgment. The way of the wicked will perish, if not in this life, then definitely in the face of God's righteous judgment. And conversely, for the Israelite who loved God's Torah and wanted to live by it and meditate upon it, life may have been still very hard and frustrating. But the time of flourishing will certainly come with God's judgment because the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Can you see what is happening here? Can you see what's happening here? God is not blind to the righteous or to the wicked. And the great day of judgment will be the great day of outcome realisation. But that brings us to the second problem. Can anyone really, truly delight in God's Torah enough to be classified as righteous? Do you think? Can anyone really do it? Delighting in God's Torah enough to be seen by God as righteous. Who could do it? Surely in ancient Israel, it was a bit like today, it it, it can't have been simple even back then, can it? To delight in God's Torah? Here's another little opportunity for you to have a chat with the person next to you. Embrace that inner Australian. Uh, The question's on the screen. Why would it have been hard for an Israelite to delight in God's Torah? You've got 30 seconds. Enjoy. All right, let's have a think about this together. I think there's a few possibilities here, aren't there? A few possibilities? Let me give you some possibilities. Perhaps your non-Israelite neighbour might have mocked God's commands. What's wrong with eating seafood? Hmm. Perhaps there were other gods of other nations nearby who, who just seemed cooler, you know, more attractive options. But by far the biggest reason that an Israelite would have struggled to delight in God's Torah? Did you come up with it? It's that same old human sin, isn't it? That's why an Israelite would struggle to delight in God's Torah. Our sin means we are naturally better at rebelling against God than delighting in his law. Sin erodes our trust in God's goodness and the goodness of his commands. Sin means we naturally don't want to submit to God's commands, God's will in our lives. So this psalm holds out this possibility of great prosperity and flourishing to the Israelite who could delight truly in God's Torah and be found righteous in God's judgment. But with the harsh reality of human sin, who could possibly do it? That is why the psalms push us towards Jesus. We are searching for an Israelite who can truly delight in God's law and be found truly righteous in God's judgment. And there is only one Israelite who could ever do that. 
So we're at point three, the truly wise Israelite. Jesus is the key to understanding this psalm and applying it rightly to our lives because he is the only one who could ever truly fulfill this psalm. Jesus is the truly wise Israelite who delighted in God's Torah and faithfully lived by it. Listen to how the New Testament speaks about this fulfilment. I'm taking you to Hebrews 10, but we could have taken you to so many places. Could we put that up on the screen? Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 7. It says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not taken, or you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The author of Hebrews here is picking up a quote from Psalm 40 to speak about the obedience of Jesus. How did Jesus please his Father in heaven? Not through sacrifices and offerings of the temple system, but by doing the will of his Father, the will that has been written down in the Torah. Jesus was the first Israelite who could ever truly delight in obeying the will of God in the Torah. And you can see the perfect example of this delight and this trust in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in in Luke 4. Do you remember three times Satan tempts Jesus to not trust in the will of his father? And three times, do you remember how Jesus responded to each temptation? By quoting from the Torah. It's a vivid reminder that Jesus' trust was in the will of his father as revealed in Scripture. So according to Psalm 1, Jesus should have flourished and prospered like a tree planted by springs of water. Do you think that that's what Jesus received for trusting in the Torah of his Father? Is that what Jesus... Is that the return that Jesus had from his perfect obedience and perfect delight in the law of his Father? Or if I may ask it in a slightly more provocative way, does execution on a cross really feel like any kind of flourishing to you? Here's the last chance to have a little chat with the person next to you. Enjoy it. Embrace that inner Aussie one last time. Questions on the screen? You've got 30 seconds. If Jesus perfectly fulfills Psalm 1, then where is the flourishing? Go for it. You've got it, haven't you? You've nailed it. I can see it. You've got it. Well done. Where is the flourishing? The clue is in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 1, isn't it? The horizon of this psalm stretches out further than just life in this world. Perhaps a quote from the book of Philippians might be the best illustration of the flourishing. On the screen, Philippians 2, 8 to 11. And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here it is, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is the flourishing. Jesus' delight in the Torah, Jesus' trust in the plans of his Father, Jesus' commitment to doing the will of his Father did not end in failure and frustration. 
Jesus, the truly wise Israelite, fulfilled Psalm 1 in all of its dimensions. And the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus is the great vindication of his delight in the will of his Father. So are you wise? Are you wise? We're at our last point today, point four, are you wise? Now, I'd love you to notice the deliberate method that we've taken in order to understand this psalm well and apply it to our lives well. We started by asking how the psalm applied to an Israelite back then because we want to understand the psalm first in its original context. Next, we looked at how the psalm was fulfilled by the one and only true Israelite who perfectly delighted in God's Torah and lived in perfect obedience to it. And it's only after those first two steps that we can then apply the psalm to our lives. In a sense, it's only our connection to Jesus that connects us to this psalm, if that makes sense. We only get a place in this psalm because we can be connected with the one who fulfills the psalm. This psalm applies to Christians today because Christians are united by faith with the one true Israelite who fulfilled it. Because you know we couldn't stand in God's judgment on our own righteousness, you know that. But united by faith with the perfectly righteous Israelite, Christians are now safe and secure in God's judgment. And when we understand the important connection that Jesus gives us to this psalm, then we can think about how to rightly apply the psalm to our lives and live wisely in God's world today. The first step to applying this psalm correctly must, in fact, be to make sure that you are safely united with the truly wise Israelite who fulfills this psalm. So the way to share in Jesus' fulfilment of the psalm is to put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Otherwise, you have no place in this psalm. All you are is the wicked who will fall at the judgment. Once you've got that, uh, that first step right and you are following Jesus, then the next step is literally to follow Jesus, to follow the example that he has set in living by trusting in God's revealed word. Jesus has demonstrated that it is wise to trust in God's revealed word. word. That, that, that this wisdom may have been hard to see during the crucifixion, but the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus demonstrate beyond any doubt. Jesus has shown us the wisest way to live is, in, to, is to entrust yourself to God. By trusting in his word. The wise way to live in relation to God's word for you and me is still to trust it and to live by it as we follow the Lord Jesus. But if you do do that, if you entrust your life to the will of God as revealed in his scriptures, does that mean nothing but hashtag blessed from here on? Well, again, Jesus is the example, isn't he? A torturous death on the cross probably didn't look like hashtag blessing. And if you entrust your life to Jesus, your life might not necessarily look like hashtag blessing. It might be the friends who actually don't really want to hang out with you anymore because you try and share the gospel with them. It might be the family members 
who perhaps make your life hard for you simply because you've committed your life to following Jesus. Maybe it's the times at work when your commitment to following Jesus means you want to work honestly and with integrity. And on that group project that your workmates just want to, well, they just want to get it done and there's an easy and quick but not honest way of doing that. Of course, there will be times in your life, just like there were times in Jesus' life, where obeying the will of God did not look like hashtag blessing. And that probably shows you just how much that little tag, hashtag blessing, has been abused and misunderstood. Because there is blessing in doing what is right, even when you suffer for it. Jesus has shown us that. Your vindication will come in God's good time. And so I want to encourage you, if you're in that hard situation at the moment, to trust God to right the wrongs in his righteous judgment. And finally, I just want to encourage you to delight in God's word. To delight in God's word. It is the wisest way you could possibly live in God's world. It's loving the Bible. It's trusting that living by God's word is actually the best way to have life in God's world. It's loving to read and think about the Bible. It's loving, it's, it's, it's loving the Bible shaping and influencing your life. The Psalm 1 word would be meditating on the Bible, thinking it over, pondering it regularly. Do you think that's what you do at the moment? Or do you need to make some changes so that you can delight in God's word and live by it a little more closely? With all of the other influences vying to shape your life, how can you keep God's revealed word as the major influence? That's the question, isn't it? And I want to encourage you that you don't have to do it alone. I love it at our university when two or three Christians help each other with this. They, they just decide off their own bat. They, they maybe do it over a coffee or they maybe have breakfast before uni. You could, you could do it over a coffee or, or breakfast before work or something like that. If, there's, if, if you're struggling in this area, why not find someone else who, who you could do it with? Or if you're doing really well in this area, why not look for someone who might be struggling that you could help in this area? What a, Christianity is a team game, right? And we can be teammates for each other, helping each other to live by God's word and to delight in God's word. If you're struggling to trust God's word at the moment, or if you're struggling to live by God's word at the moment, or if you're just struggling to give God's word that place of influence in your life at the moment, why not get some teammates who can dig into God's word with you and you can help each other on the, on the game. The truly wise way to live in God's world is to put your trust in the truly wise Saviour and then to follow him in living by the truth of God's word. Let's try to help each other do that because that's the thing that's going to make a real difference in our lives. Let's pray that God will do it.
Our Father God, we're really thankful to you that you, you have given us your word that is the wise way to live in your world. We're sorry for our sin and we understand that we fail so often to live by your word and to see the beauty and the, the goodness of your word. Please forgive us. And Father, we pray that we might uh, trust in your vindication and trust you to right the wrongs that are done to us. And we pray that that trust will lead us to be able to keep living by trusting your word rather than having to uh, get our own justice. Father, please make us delight in your word and please help us to follow our Lord Jesus in that great example he has set in living by your word every day. We pray that you'll do this in our lives so that we might honour Jesus as he deserves. Amen.